Welcome back to 100 Plus, a look at the most significant people, events, and ideas in the history of the Christian faith. In today's podcast, Mike Woodruff takes a look at the 4th century scholar and church leader Jerome, who, although a bit odd and eccentric, helped the early church get an accurate copy of the Bible. One of the most uh, exciting things to me about framing um, a church history study around the 100 most important people, events, and ideas was a chance to hone in on the 100 most important people, events, and ideas. Uh, The study of history can be fun. Of course, it can be insufferably boring, but um, it can be fun. And if it's sort of thoughtfully done, and if we could sort of thoughtfully and sequentially focus on the big things, I thought that this would be helpful to people understanding uh, what has gone on over the last 2,000 years. And I think that this is important because my take is that most Christians, and perhaps I'm focusing here on Western Christians and Protestant Christians at that, uh, most people have almost no idea what happens between the Apostle Paul and Billy Graham. Um, Might know a few things about the Reformation and have this sense that some bad things happened with the uh, Crusades and Inquisition and uh, Middle Ages is just a big mess. Um, but that's about it. So I thought, well, we'll water ski over a lot of things, but we'll we'll take a little bit of a deeper dive uh, around the things that really matter, and we'll do it in order, and that will help everybody sort of get some handles on things. Well, if you've been with us from the beginning, you know that the first mistake was uh, that I made was trying to <laughs> was trying to do these in 10 minutes. I just couldn't get it done. Uh, I was going to do them off the top of my head because, of course, most people know very little about church history. So I thought, well, I can just take these top 100 things and talk about them for 10 minutes very quickly. Uh, but I found that uh, these big events are big events in part because of the, the context around them. And so I needed to give uh, more attention to the moods and the movements that were going on and, uh, and, and that meant that they just took a lot more time than I thought. So um, the fact that they're longer forced me to do a little bit of work on this. And so I've been going back and reviewing uh, old notes and lectures and skimming some of the new books that have come out. And as I've done that, I have been struck by a couple things. First, uh, the church history that I studied um, 30, 35 years ago was very Western. Uh, now, I'm, I'm a fan of Western civilization, uh, and I'm not sure we should give up the study of Western civilization for global civilization. When my oldest son went to college, he was in an honors program, and one of the first things that he did is he took a course on uh, Chinese civilization. <laughs> I thought, okay, well, okay, great, except you don't know Western civilization. Why in the world are you studying Chinese civilization? I mean, it just it seems a little odd, but oh well. I, so I'm not down on, on the study of Western civilization. But there is a lot, as I have looked at some of these newer takes on things, there's a lot about African and Asian church history that um, I did not get when I did this 40 years ago. And it's helpful because some of, these, um, some of the things happening there have, have shaped things. The second big aha I had was remembering how incredibly messy and iterative uh, history is. Things do not line up in an orderly fashion, and that makes explaining them more complicated. And we have that coming into play uh, today in this episode, uh, number 12, uh, because um, 
well, I'm just trying to keep things in order. We started uh, in the first century, a couple events, the, the burning of uh, Rome, and then the destruction of Jerusalem, and then uh, moved pretty quickly into the Antonician period, which starts at the death of John, the apostle, I think last time I said John the Baptist, John the apostle around 100 AD, and it goes up till the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD. And this is where I talked about Justin and Polycarp and a few of the others. Uh, and then I did a few episodes on Nicaea itself, uh, the Council of Nicaea, Constantine, uh, and then some of the events around the Council of Nicaea. So the formation, the early formation of the New Testament canon, the Apostles' Creed, these things were not done then, but they sort of had their grounding, their beginning there. So we looked at that. And then we have moved uh, more recently into the post-Nicene period, which I said is busy. Uh, lots of players because there's a sort of explosion of writing, explosion of thinking. And so uh, in podcast um, uh, 10 and 11, I started to talk about the, all the doctors of the Roman Catholic Church come out of this time. We looked at uh, Athanasius, uh, who was the one that fought you know, for the, uh, the, the council or fought for the, the Nicene Creed to be uh, embraced. And then uh, last time we focused on uh, Augustine because he is the major player of the post-Nicene period and arguably the major player after the formation of, uh, after the events and the people of the New Testament. So I mentioned others, uh, the Cappadocian fathers, Chrysostom and some others. But today we are gonna focus on Eusebius, Hieronymus Sophronus, who mercifully goes by the name of Jerome. And uh, he's this fourth century monastic scholar who assembled the Latin Vulgate. So the challenge here is that in order to appreciate Jerome, you sort of have to understand a bit about uh, monasticism. But monasticism doesn't show up in my list of 100 things uh, for a while until we get to St. Benedict. And so I chased my tail on this for a little bit, and I finally decided, okay, um, we're going to take Jerome now, and then we're going to move on to the fall of Rome and the Council of Chalcedon, and then St. Patrick, who's one of my favorite people to study. Um, and then we'll come, when we come to St. Benedict, we are going to um, look at the development of monasticism. So I'll say a little bit about it today, but not much. So... The Council of Nicaea happens in 325. The post-Nicaean period starts right away, and it goes up until the fall of Rome, which happens when uh, King Alaric, a, a Gothic king, uh, Alaric, I think he's a Hun, he, um, in 410, he does something that no one had done in 800 years, and that is that he, he overcomes the wall around Imperial Rome, and he goes in and he sacks the city. And, and, and Rome, this holy city, this center of, of civilization, falls, begins to fall. It's going to take a long time to fully fall. But with the, with the barbarians overcoming the gates, you enter uh, into the Dark Ages, or uh, now that's, out, it's, that's not in, in the favor, so now I think the politically correct term is the Early Middle Ages. So uh, the post-Nicene period goes from the end, of the, the end of the Council of Nicaea up until the fall of Rome. And we looked at Athanasius already. He was one who worked in this period, and Augustine, uh, who comes later, 
354 he's born and then his whole you know his adult life he's going to be dealing with the the fall and the collapse of Rome he'll he will die in 430 and 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 the the barbarians are in a sense marching into Hippo in in Algeria northern Africa at that point so it's a long uh, collapse in one sense between them comes Ambrose and I mentioned Ambrose uh, last time I wish I had more time for Ambrose he was the Bishop of Milan modern day Italy he was such a polished preacher, so eloquent that Augustine, uh, when he's this new professor of rhetoric and, and gets the job in Milan, goes to hear Ambrose, and he's just wanting to study Ambrose's speaking style, but uh, he hears the gospel. It's part of what wins him over. Um, and Ambrose is worthy of study for other reasons. Um, he has this sort of controversial coronation as, as the uh, bishop of Milan in 354. He wasn't, he wasn't a theologian. He wasn't really... Uh, sort of on the track to become the bishop, but the people loved him so much that when the previous bishop died, they sort of uh, force, uh, they force him. Initially, he says no, but they force him to become uh, the bishop. And so he, as the bishop, he then decides to start to study uh, theology. And uh, he had been, I think, an attorney before then. So um, he studies theology, and then he becomes this prominent theologian, a very important writer, uh, he's alongside being a great preacher and a, and a good thinker. He's a great administrator. He has a reputation for being good in worship, uh, antiphonal worship, sort of monastic or Middle Ages uh, worship is often uh, credited to him. Probably that's um, not what happened, but he probably embraced it. And, and so it grows up under his uh, reign. He has a reputation for being wise on uh, issues of church and state. Um, and he's just, he's wonderfully warm and generous. We're going to see him as the contrast to Jerome, who is, nobody likes Jerome. Uh, he's wonderfully warm and generous. He's winsome. And, and yet he is not willing to back down on a fight at all. So theological issues, he will not give an inch to the Arians. Um, and, and he's also courageous. So Theodosius is the king at this time. And Theodosius is a Christian, and he's a friend of, uh, of Ambrose's, and, and, um, um, <laughs> and he gets mad at some point. There's a riot going on in this part of his um, empire. So he sends in the troops in Thessalonica, and they, they kill like 6,000 people. And Ambrose thinks this is a, an incredibly unjust, bad thing that he has done. And so when Theodosius, the king, comes for communion, he says, no, you can't have communion. You, you've got you've to repent. You've got to do penance in order to get back into the church. Uh, and this is not the kind of thing you said to a king. But um, Ambrose did. And, uh, and to his credit, Theodosius uh, repented publicly. Um, there's other things that we could say about Ambrose. But, um, but again, he, he's probably most famous for, for being involved in seeing Augustine uh, come to faith under his preaching and under just his friendship. Uh, but our focus is on Jerome, Jerome, again, the opposite of Ambrose and the opposite really of Augustine. Uh, so Jerome is born in 347 to well-to-do Christian parents in uh, Striden, think uh, modern day Slovenia. Uh, if that doesn't mean anything to you, think of the Balkans. If that doesn't mean anything to you, think of uh, the middle of Europe. So um, when he was 12, he goes to Rome to study uh, rhetoric and philosophy. Near the end of this time, he has, uh, he, he has a conversion. He's baptized. 
And then he's going to spend the next 20 years traveling around, during which time he is going to be attracted uh, to monasticism, which is very different than the monasticism that Luther is going to react so negatively to uh, at the time of the Reformation. So uh, early monasticism is really uh, an effort to uh, purify the church, it's an effort to, to reach a greater level of sanctification, not to earn salvation. It doesn't go down that path. Um, but and it's also just a way uh, the early monks see themselves as working for the common good. So, so there's sort of two categories of monasticism. Some are, are hermits, and uh, they seek to be left alone to pray. They're going to go into the desert. Uh, and, and those in this camp often want to double down on the things that they see in the Bible. So there's a sense in which all Christians are called to pray and to worship and to care for the poor. There's a sense that we're all called to this. But they also see that in the Bible, for instance, Samson takes this Nazarite vow that he's not going to cut his hair and he's not going to drink alcohol. And Jesus goes into the desert for 40 days of fasting and prayer. And so they're like, we're going to we're going to do everything we can to sort of double down on some of these things. And it's not going into the desert, not being a hermit to escape the corruption of the world. That's what I thought initially, but it's sort of the opposite. It's an understanding that uh, the biggest problems are not the world. They're sort of in my own heart. I've got to wrestle with those. You go out into the desert to wrestle with the devil, to wrestle with your own lusts and other things. And so um, they, you've got that that kind of, of monk. And then you've got, in addition to those who want to be left alone, you've got those that get together. They're going to form a community, a monastic community. They're going to work together to, to try and uh, help each other grow in Christ-likeness, uh, to worship together, and to be an engine for the common good. So, uh, again, I'll talk a lot more about this later on, but Jerome has got some hermit uh, in him, uh, in part because nobody can get along with the guy. He is described as bitter, vain, vindictive, <laughs> and inconsistent. And that's like what his friends say. Um, so um, this is why Ambrose is so much his opposite. Am everybody loves Ambrose, even those people that he's not giving an inch to in theological debates. Everybody likes Ambrose. So um, he, by the way, he's, he's Augustine's opposite because Augustine is going to spend his whole life, you know, really sort of regretting that he doesn't get a have sex with this concubine. Uh, and and Amber, or excuse me, Jerome is going to be uh, upset most of his life that he's got too many books. Um, he has this, famously, he has this dream in which he feels convicted uh, that, that he is being judged for, for being too much a disciple of Cicero, this you know, philosopher, and not enough of Jesus. And so he's got all, he was a, he was a scholar of, of Cicero. He's got all these books, these classic books. Besides, he has to get rid of them. So he's, um, you know, he's not a happy guy. Uh, so initially, he's gonna he's gonna uh, form a, a monastic band of people that are gonna try and 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 get along, but no one can get along with him. And so this this group this this group disbands. So at this point, three seventy four, he goes to Antioch, and uh, when he gets there, he's he's sort of uh, tired of travel. He's got some inner conflict. And um, so he does some writing for a bit. But then uh, at 375, he gets sick. He almost dies. And uh, this is when he has his famous dream that he's got too many books. And um, so he decides that he is going to uh, take a two-year stint as a hermit. 
but he he's, uh, he goes into the Syrian desert, but he he's not really prepared for it. He's not really cut out for it. The experience is not altogether successful. He uh, he he comes back into into broader civilization, and over the next few years, he's then going to be involved um, in some of the theological conflicts of the day. He's going to be ordained as a priest, and he is eventually going to end up. Um, he doesn't want to take on any priestly duties. He's going to end up as a scholar, and he ends up as the secretary for the Bishop of Rome, and he's going to write some theological treatises and other things. In 385, he is going to leave Rome, which he calls Babylon, and he is going to travel to the Holy Land. He'll do this with a number of people traveling with him, Paula and a number of women, um, sort of wealthy people that are supporting him in this and uh, he's going to go down to the Holy Land. He's going to set up, uh, again, he's going to set up a monastic order and a cloister for, for the women. Uh, and he's going to spend, somewhat unsuccessfully, because the, these, um, these, this monastery won't necessarily work, but he's going he's gonna to live there for the rest of his life. He'll die in 420. And um, so it's unlikely uh, that we would be talking about Jerome as one of the 100 most significant people, except for the work he does when he's in, uh, in Bethlehem. And I saw his study there when, on one of my trips. You can go into the room where he did a lot of his uh, study uh, for those last 30 years. And, and what he does is he translates the Bible into, he gives us the Latin Vulgate. So um, here's what you have to understand. The New Testament's written in Greek. The Hebrew, um, Hebrew Bible is written in Hebrew, yeah. The Old Testament is written in Hebrew. Uh, at the time, the, most people did not read Greek or Hebrew. Uh, some of the people read Greek because Alexander the Great had conquered the world, but um, a lot of people didn't read Greek now. At this point, they're reading uh, Latin. And so in the West, as Rome is gaining dominance, people are just reading Latin. So um, there is, a, there is a, a Hebrew translation into the Greek called the Septuagint, uh, sometimes abbreviated LXX because there was this belief that 70, so it's Roman numeral 70, 70 scholars had translated it and they had this perfect translation. And so it's, so you've got, the, you've got the Greek Old and New Testament. If you read Greek, that you were fine. You could, you could read the Bible. But not many people could, and so there's a, and, and the Latin translations that are out there, there's all kinds of them, and there's, they've got some, some controversies sometimes over translations. And so, um, so Jerome, this great scholar, is, is tasked by, um, by, uh, by the church to write, to do the translation into uh, Latin, to give the church a great Latin translation. And so initially, 382 to 385, he works translating uh, from Latin and uh, Greek into, um, into Latin. And then he decides that, that uh, what he really needs to do is he's got to study Hebrew in order to make a, a great translation, uh, not out of translations, but he's going to go back to the more original texts. And he's going to work on this uh, for the next 23 years until 404 uh, when he's done. And by the way, it takes him this long because he's involved in writing all kinds of things. He's involved in every theological controversy that's going on at that time. 
And he will write, with the exception of, uh, of Augustine, he will write more commentaries, he will write more treatises, he'll write more than anyone else, perhaps in the history of the church. And so he's doing a lot of other things, but he's going to give us this Latin Vulgate. So Vulgate is a Latin word, uh, vulgus, and it means common. So he's, um, you can see the er derivation of the word vulgar, common, the, the language that everybody can understand. He is going to uh, give the church a translation that will last for the next thousand years. And it will become the translation. As a matter of fact, at the Council of Trent in the 16th century, the, the Roman Catholic Church will say that the Latin Vulgate is the you know, sort of premier Latin translation. And it, it, is the, it is the Bible that if you're Catholic that you want to use. Um, so, um, look, um, a few notes here. Um, when he's done, he's got this, this, this very fine, uh, accurate, well-written, thoughtful, uh, accurate, carefully translated copy of the Bible in the, in the language that people could read. And, um, and so <laughs> it's a little, little tragic that over time, a lot of errors, a lot of copy errors, because remember, you're just writing it's just people writing. You can't go to, you know, you can't just Xerox this stuff off. And so errors get introduced. And if I, if I make a copying error and give you my copy, and then all the copies you make to hand out to your friends are going to have my copying errors plus any copying errors that you get. So you can imagine over a thousand years, you just got lots of, of copying errors. Jerome's work is so, um, is so revered that everybody just wants this, you know, they want Jerome's Vulgate, but the problem is lots of, uh, of errors are going to be introduced to this, but because it's so highly esteemed, no one's going to be, until the Reformation, sort of nobody's going back to the Greek and Hebrew that, that he was using to get the translation that he gave everybody else. So um, there's another irony here, and that is that, you know, a thousand years later, nobody speaks Latin. And so he translates it into Latin so that everybody, it's the language of the people, everybody can use it. And now um, most services that are in Latin, of course, nobody understands. So there are some ironies here. One final note to, to mention about Jerome is that uh, when he was preparing the Bible, when he was looking at the Hebrew and Greek translations to, to copy into Latin, he realized that the, the intertestamental books the apocryphal books. So this, these are the books that uh, that you have heard of that are in the Catholic Bible and not in the Protestant Bible. Uh, Judith and Maccabees and the Wisdom of Solomon and Ecclesiasticus and these books, these books that are written between the end of the writing of the Old Testament about 400 BC and and then the beginning of the New Testament. He he sees that these books are not in the in the Hebrew Bible, and so he decides that they should not be in his Bible. Um, that they are helpful, but that they are not on par with the Hebrew canon or the New Testament canon. So he wants to leave them out, but he is forced to leave them in, but he sort of makes it clear that he doesn't think they should be in. So a thousand years after, after him, when the reformers get to uh, translating, going back to the Greek and Hebrew, they're, they're actually going to leave it out. So, given that the Latin Vulgate will be, um, it's going to shape the church for the next thousand years and, it, and, and be the official Roman Catholic Bible of today, and given that uh, he did all this work by himself, um, you can see why he makes the list of the top 100. Not as important as Augustine, 
Not as nice a guy as Ambrose, uh, but very important. And so that is Jerome. The next episode we have, we'll look at the fall of Rome. That will be episode number 13.